Hi, and welcome to Master's Choice Podcast, Episode 6. Today in studio, we have Lynn Crabtree, the owner and president of Master's Choice. Today, Lynn and I discuss forage samples decoded, what to look for on a forage sample, and why, why those things are important. And joining us in the studio today for a guest appearance was Alex Feller, Director of Finance, and he spoke about economics and making uh, farms profitable. So we hope that you can get something out of this, and we hope that you enjoy it. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for joining us again for uh, MC Podcast, Episode 6. You can pick up the rest of these if this is your first time uh, hearing us. You can pick up the rest of these on uh, iTunes and uh, Podbean. And so I would ask that you would do that as you kind of catch up. Today in the... um, in the studio, we have the owner, manager, chief cook, and bottle washer, the head dude. I take out the trash sometimes. Take too. out the trash sometimes. Yeah. I, I think I've seen him once or twice with a vacuum cleaner. I wash the trucks. You know? uh, absolutely. So Lynn Crabtree is here with us today. And uh, Lynn, we appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, for being here. Now, I do know that you had several meetings uh, this morning, but uh, you, you have been on vacation, have you not? I have been two weeks away from things, and I'll just let you know something, Mark. Uh, I had no idea how tired I was until until we got away. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big sports fan. A lot of, a lot of folks know that uh, the only thing I really wanted to do in my life was be a professional baseball player. And of course, when that didn't work out, I still love the sport and I follow it to this day. And so I'm unashamedly a St. Louis Cardinals fan. And in Jupiter, Florida, by the way, spring training's been going on. And for two weeks, uh, Paul and I have been down there, and we've been on the backfields and and uh, and watching the minor league camp. We've been on the major league fields watching the big league club, and and uh, so we've had a we've had a great couple of weeks. But uh, but uniquely, uh, we were I was I was a lot more tired than I thought I was. We got down there and we kind of crashed, and so we have. We've had two weeks of kind of catching up. So, yeah, yeah, you might say that I... Hey, nothing wrong with, with catching up. We all need kind of a, that, that Sabbath that comes and gives our body a rest and, and uh, those kinds of things. So we, we, all, we all need that. Now, so the big question is, when you came back to the office, uh, did we burn it down? Was it in as good a shape as you thought it would be in? What, 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 how are you supposed to feel about that? When you come back and everything has gone on as if, you know, they, it hasn't skipped a beat when you were gone, are you supposed to be pleased and proud that you have, you know, that you've trained a staff of people to be able to take off or that really they didn't miss you at all, you know, or disappointed in the fact that, you know, we didn't miss you at all. Well, it's not that we didn't miss you. Just sometimes we wonder if we need you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's kind of getting to the point of my, yeah, yeah there you my go. confusion. There you go. No, no, we, uh, we, we need you. We do. It, it, well, we need Miss P. No, we, I understand we, we need, that. We need Miss Paula more, more at, at times. So. And she likes me driving her around. There you go. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, we're glad that you got back and rested and, and, and relaxed and, and can kind of hit the ground running and uh, keeping us all on our toes. So no, well-deserved, much-needed vacation for sure. No, no begrudgment here whatsoever. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, um, got a couple of topics that we're going to run through today. And, you know, Lynn, you and I, we've kind of been uh, in the nutrition realm for, for enough years that we can pick up a feed sample, know exactly what we need to look at, know exactly what those abbreviations and numbers kind of need and, and what levels that we want. 
but what I found is there are a lot of guys out there who who it's who it just it's all Greek to them, so to speak. You know, it, it's confusing. Not every not every lab has the same uh, kind of report. It and and so. Um, what are what are some of the things if if a if a producer a a, a grower a, a livestock uh, enthusiast uh, grabs a uh, grabs a feed sample? What are some of those aspects that they need to really look at, and and where are those levels that we kind of want them to be for for what we would call ideal corn silage? Mark, I think I'll answer that question maybe by by saying there's a couple of different ways I look at a feed sample. Uh, when I see one, there's a there's there's just a very few things that I look at that are general that I think really are the main indicators. Okay. You know, those are the, the, those are the foundational stones that, that, that kind of going to uh, form my opinion about what we're looking at in terms of a lab sample. And then there are some of these cases where you go, hey, here's, here's a sample and, and, and something screwy here. And then we begin to look at that sample with a, a little more critical and a little more in-depth. Sure. Um, but I think that on, on an average, when, when I'm looking at a, at a solid sample and we've got, you know, my goodness, Mark, I don't know how many thousands of samples that you have to work with in the course of a year, but it's un, unreal uh, what this thing has developed into with all of the new experimental and, and things that R&D is coming up with and is, and is growing and all of that all of that line of materials that are out there. I know that you deal with thousands and thousands of them, but when I see those sure. samples, I look very basic yeah. initially. Yeah. You know, and when, when I look basic, I'm thinking about, you know, run through those quickly. I'm, I'm, looking, at, I'm looking at moisture. I'm looking at at, um, at, at the moisture and the, and the dry matter of the sample because that's going to skew it tremendously. Sure. I'm looking at uh, the, uh, the percent of uh, starch that's in that sample. Um, you know, a lot of people probably focus a lot on protein. I don't focus too much on protein, but okay. I want to look at the fiber percentage. Okay. I want to know what the digestibility of that fiber is because it's going to let me have a, a, a good indicator of when and how that, that sample was harvested in, in what stage of vegetation. And so, uh, you know, we're looking at, we're looking at trying to, to develop big, heavy, hearty, healthy corn plants, you know, that, that, that are harvested at the right period of time, that have got a lot of grain with them, and, and, the, and sugar contents are high, so you get a high fiber digestibility. That's the, that's the basics. Right, right. But then we can really begin to break that down and look at some of the fine things. But I think a lot of times when we get folks that are calling in asking me a question, they're focused on some of the more micro aspects of the analysis and put too much emphasis there sure. uh, when, they, when they really need to make sure that that sample has all of the basic elements in place. Absolutely. And, and like you said, one of those most basic elements is moisture yes. and, and, and dry matter. Yes. And so dry matter is basically any part of that, that sample that's, that's dry, that's not water. Right, and and so where where you you were talking about how how that could skew how this sample is, and not necessarily skew, but kind of framework how it is. So if I if I have something that's too wet or too dry, what what kind of what kind of ways can that affect a a, a silage quality? Now, answering that question, I think is one that that you and I would both agree is we could probably spend hours talking oh, about absolutely um, absolutely because. 
uh, our industry, those folks that are selling seed corn to be harvested for silage, have largely been recommending wetter, 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 wetter as we go along. And as we begin to harvest silage wetter, we begin to harvest it more vegetative, less, less mature. And so we don't give that corn a chance to go ahead and, and physiologically develop yes. the percentage of starch, which we need for the unit of energy that, that's gonna go into that to, to making milk or meat for, for that animal that consumes it. So we don't, want to, we don't want to have to get in that scenario where we go wetter, 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 and we do that so that we can increase the digestibility of the starch, which is understood. Absolutely. But we decrease the percentage of starch when we continue to do that. So you want to look at that sample and you want to begin to get an idea of where that corn plant was at when it was harvested. So we're we're looking at we're looking at these numbers and and you know and for guys that have harvested silage you understand this you know you're looking at trying to harvest that when the grain is is kind of you know at uh, at half milk yeah. you know and uh, and and it's going to fall in in a nice range that's going to be in that on the low side the wet side 28 percent um, uh, dry matter you know or on the high side 38 percent dry yeah. matter but that's kind of a range that we're looking at. And what I have found from my experience is I want a corn hybrid that's going to have good starch digestibility out of the gate. Yes. Not have to harvest it at those really wet moisture levels, uh, but begin to get it up there in, the, in towards the mid-30s. I think you and I would agree closely. I mean, I, I would like to see that sample push 33 to 35%. Absolutely. And, and you may be more in that. 32 to 34%, but I think we're splitting hairs Absolutely, there. Absolutely, yeah. At that point, you are splitting hairs. So I, I think what we what we see then when we begin to, 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 to look at moisture is if we've got a number in there, and, and, and there's things that can skew this number, you know, droughty conditions yep, yep. Or, or unusually wet conditions can skew this number, we're looking at something in that, in that, uh, in that mid, low to mid-30s range as being ideal, and that's going to allow us to see the higher percentage of starch, the starch developed in that corn and, and, and realizing that we've still harvested that corn in, a, in, a, in enough of a vegetative stage that we've maintained sugars in a higher level of, of fiber digestibility. Uh, absolutely. And if we, take it, if we take it too wet, we don't have the starch there. Right. We may, we may, we may have good fiber digestibility, um, but if we take it too dry, we may have a little more starch but the starch digestibility will decrease and so will the fiber digestibility. Yes. And, and, and so we, we do, we want that, that good spot. And I think I agree right with you there. I, I, like, a, I like a 32 to 35% moisture is where we need to aim. One, one of the things that will fool us there sometimes is uh, when I have a, a plant with good stay green and my, my plant is good stay green and my, my kernels are drying down, I've got to really watch out for, for those, kinds of, those kinds of things. Um, so, so we, we got moisture there that we've talked about. What, what are some of those other aspects uh, that we look at um, that, that, are, that can kind of help us, the, that big view, um, those simple things, those, those most glaring things that we can look at when we, when we look at that, when we look at a silage sample? Well, let, let's say we got, that, we got that silage sample harvested at about the right moisture, but we, we mentioned that there are a few things that could skew that a little bit. So without getting too much in depth, what was the percentage of starch? Right. I want to know how much starch was in that corn silage sample because we can make it on time, but if it was a droughty corn, did that corn, was that, was that a type of a hybrid that was going to go ahead and put its energy into reproduction so that we 
made a nice size ear and and maybe it was maybe it was drought corn harvested on time moisture's about right but do we have starch levels that are up there in the 30s or we percent range or is it going to be more in the 20 percent range did it not make grain because it's going to feed vastly different uh, based off of the percentage of starch that's uh, you know that's in that silage sample so I kind of want to see there what that what that looks like I don't know what it yielded you know and at that point it's it's it that's that doesn't you know, yield doesn't enter into the equation. That's something right. that we've got to take into account when we're choosing our corn hybrids um, because we, we, we definitely want something that's going to endure stress and be able to make yield. But um, I don't know why I'm changing that ch- tangent because what we're talking about is the quality of that, of that silage sample. Yeah. And, and, and moisture contents, first thing I look at, percent starch would be the second. Percent starch, and we want that in the 30s. Yes. Yeah, and, and, and usually... If, it, if I'm over 35 and pushing 40, my silage is too dry. Often. Uh, oftentimes. Not, not always. Not always. But, but, but oftentimes we, we, we do see that. So we like a mid, mid-30s is, is kind of where, where we're at. Low-30s is, is, still, is still pretty good. What, what about the fiber aspect? What, what, what measurements of fiber do you look at? Can I, can I back up just a little yeah. bit? Because we see a lot of folks, and has this been a really – it's been a very popular thing to do within uh, within industry circles is chop silage high, yeah. pull that chopper height up yeah. and and leaving a couple of feet of silage out there in the in the field. Then we can begin to run some of those percent starch numbers higher. True, uh, true, And, and the true. quality of that silage may be pretty decent. But let me let me say this, from from my experience, I have seen so much good material, and and the industry says that that material, that bottom two feet of silage is just junk. And, and with a lot of corn, it may be, that may be true. But the sugars that are in that plant that are gonna help in fermentation and the, and the solid material that's in that stock that aids with, with compaction in a silage pile or, or bag or, or upright is absolutely necessary. Absolutely. And so a lot of times if I'm looking at a silage sample that is abnormally high in starch, I get a little concerned about how that silage was going to have fermented Mm -hmm. because we took away the material that's going to aid in its rapid fermentation. Absolutely. So one of the things I think that are really overlooked and that could come out of this discussion of looking at a silage sample is that we really would like to get those choppers down low and take some of that material that's not horrible material but has has got some good digestible NDF hemicellulose, absolutely high in sugars, yep, and 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 and, and high in in solid material that's going to pack silage. So where do you like to see that? Where do you like to see that chopping height? Oh, I like to see that chopping height just above the stones. Okay, you know, I mean, if you got rocks in the field, don't suck them up into the into the chopper. But okay. you know, obviously, haha. But uh, but no, seriously, I like to see those uh, those cutter bars down as far as we can get them on a healthy corn plant. On a healthy corn plant, what are there any dangers of taking silage? you know, taking it too low? In a really droughty year, if you've been using a lot of, a lot of nitrogen fertilizer, there can be some nitrate element okay. in the bottom part of that stalk. That's something that probably needs to be looked at long before you go out there with the chopper intending to cut, 
I, I, would, I would agree. I'd agree. I, and I, I'm with you. I think that there are often times when I drive by a field that's been freshly chopped, I see too much material still left uh, out there. There's nothing that can't be overcome with, with silage, you know, with letting that silage uh, ensile for a while. That's not, that's not going to be an issue, and it's not something that I would use as a basis to shy away from cutting, uh, getting that chopper down, uh, you know, toward, towards the ground and taking in some good material. Uh, absolutely. Increase in yield. Yes, yes, increase in yield, and I think increase in quality. Yep. And, and so no, no doubt about that. So speaking in increase of quality, fiber, where, where do we want to be at with, with fiber? What, what measurements are you, uh, are you first drawn to when you're looking at fiber? Well, we, we've, you know, years ago as, as a nutritionist, we, we didn't have fiber digestibility. We right. were looking at ADF and NDF. ADF is a measurement of cellulose and lignin. Those elements, which we would largely say are not the most digestible portion of a, of a silage fiber. But then when we're looking at NDF, which NDF includes the hemicellulose, which is our sugars, and the more digestible, as a rule, measurement of our fibers. So a spread between ADF and NDF, you know, would be good. Lower ADF, that stuff which is largely not digestible. And, but then don't worry about your NDF floating upwards a little bit. For example, we get the chopper we, 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 we've got a guy out there that's been cutting 18 inches off the ground, and I encourage him to go out there and cut within six, eight inches off the ground. And so he's going to bring in more fiber, but he's, the fiber that he's bringing in is, is going to be a lot of that. A lot of that's going to be hemicellulose. Yes. So that NDF number can float upwards a little bit without being detrimental. So I don't pay a lot of attention to the NDF. I pay more attention to the spread between the ADF and the NDF, and I'd like to see that ADF number low. If I see that then, Mark, then I begin to think that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin to see a higher NDFD, where we begin to look at the digestibility of, of the fiber components that are, that are in that. And now within that, within that, that that's, that's uh, abbreviated there, NDFD, Neutral Detergent Fiber Digestibility, okay? And on a lot of feed samples, they'll have NDFD 30, 48, 120, 12, they have all of these numbers. Mm -hmm. Which ones do I really need to be to be focused on? Now, if that question is going to Mark Kirk and he's looking at he's looking at developing the next super corn for Master's Choice, he better be looking at all of them. Absolutely. And, and Absolutely. not only that, he better be looking at some that the industry isn't testing. Yeah, for. Absolutely. Uh, I want to see. I want you to know what the fiber digestibility is at at six hours, at twelve hours, at eighteen hours, at twenty four hours, at thirty hours. Uh, the labs used to always insist on forty eight hours because they said that's where we can get consistent numbers. Well. Yeah, I mean, at 240, they're even more consistent, you know, because uh, uh, you know because we've let we've let something that's very that, that's not going to break down in our cows in a reasonable period of time to look more like the things that are going to break down in our cows in a reasonable period of time. So I want to know how that fiber is beginning to uh, to be activated within the rumen of the cow. I want to know how long it's taken the fungi to access the the bacteria. You know, for the uh, for the microbes and and uh, and so I want to know what what that is. I want to know how quickly that comes about. Um, standard number today is is has gone from N NDFD 48, which we begin to look at years ago um, when we first begin to, to to decide that oh hey guess what fiber is not all the same in terms of of how it's digested. We we now more more a standard number is 30 hours. That's an improvement. Uh, I'm not sure 24 hours isn't. Isn't uh, isn't a more uh, successful number if I was going to look at that? Uh, but in terms of our folks out there that are concentrating on numbers, um, NDFD30 is a pretty good indicator of how good that silage is. 
Yeah, and NDFD 30 is kind of that snapshot at 30 hours. And so where, where do we want that to fall in line, where where do we like to see an NDFD thirty? Man, I'll tell you what. Don't get too focused on the numbers because every lab is different. Every True. lab is uniquely True. different in the way that they arrive at that number. You know, there's there's a great deal of of consistency, but there's also enough differences in lab to lab that that number Agreed. can be skewed. So don't be as concerned about what the number is, but how that that number ranks with other corn or other samples that have come from the same lab. And so, you know, a, a, a good number across the board, you know, may be 60 or low 60s from one lab, and a good number may be low to mid 50s at another lab. And so don't compare one from this lab to one from that lab because uh, that, that will just confuse you terribly. So Yes, yes, I, 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 can't, um, I can't agree with you more on that. Um, for, for sure. You got to definitely be looking at lab to lab. Uh, some of the labs that I've noticed here uh, lately have, have started to give averages, you know, 60 day averages, four year averages. And that's where you really need to see where your corn silage is, uh, is, is falling in there. And in fact, there's some labs that are even giving uh, not just averages, but giving ideal and, uh, you know, f compare for their lab, you know, those ideal numbers and those low numbers and high numbers and, and, where, and where you need to be. And so looking at it compared to that lab is, is absolutely. And those are really good tools to be able to be used so that we can begin to predict uh, what we're going to be doing in terms of milk production with this corn solids that we just married up with for the next year. Um, and, but, but there's a couple of different ways to look at that. And we need to be cautious as we do that. Uh, if we look at it on, on how, if, if we're comparing how that corn silage sample compares with all the other silage samples that year, then sure. we've got an idea of how, how may, maybe how successful we were at selecting a particular corn and how that stacked up against all the other silage varieties mm -hmm. that were harvested and went through that lab in a year. So that's going to let me know how did my master's choice stack up against the brand X competition? Because, you know, a lot of that other um, out there is, is going gonna, is gonna, is gonna to have those other influences from other companies. So it lets me know whether I'm on the right track for selecting a silage sample. But, but looking at averages over years, over, over, the, over three years, four years, which some of them are using, yes. that's a good tool too to let me know how this corn is going to feed in relation to how I've how my milk performance has been in the last two or three years, but it's going to be an in indicator of what the weather circumstances have done, you know, that has made this silage better or, or less. More yes. healthy corn plants per acre, fewer healthy corn plants per acre, you know, harvested on time. Well, we do have too much moisture. We didn't in some parts of the country. Other parts of the country, we were too dry, you know, when we were harvesting, which is going to influence that. So, you know, uh, all those factors need to be taken into consideration, but good tools, good tools. Very much so. Uh, so we talk about NDFD30. What about these long-term NDFs? What about what about UNDFs? You know, the undigestible portion of that fiber. Do we do we need to be concerned about those? I know that that's something that you work a great deal with because we're looking at gut fill. Uh, we're looking at trying to predict how much uh, uh, dry matter intake we're going to be able to get into our cows uh, by using some of those undigestible numbers. You know, in, in 240 hours, this don't break down. Guess what? Cow ain't going to get nothing out of that. Absolutely. You know? And so you're looking at, you're looking at uh, gut feel based off of undigestible fiber. And uh, that's going to be uniform across, 
across all all cows. Every ruminant is going to her dry matter intake is going to be based off of how much undigestible material put in there. The less you put in, the more she's going to consume, and so dry matter intake can go up, and that can be an indicator of milk production. Yes, not necessarily milk efficiency, but milk production. <clears throat> so let me just take a step back and and make this clear to, to our listeners. So if I have uh, NDFD30, I want a high number. Yes. The, the higher, the better. Yes. And with UNDF, the lower, the better. Undigestible NDF, the U stands for undigestible, so we want a low number there. That's, that's, the, that's the stuff that's going to that's gonna cause a, a, a lack of, of, of gut feel and, and, and decreased dry matter intake. Now, <clears throat> that's going to be different from variety to variety, and 30-hour NDFD is going to be different from, from variety to variety, but it'll also be different from feedstuff to feedstuff also. You know, some of your some of your halages may have a little bit higher UNDFs than your corn silages, and so you really got to kind of your your nutritionist has got to balance those and and match those up so that we're not getting too much of that UNDF. And I think that uh, Minor Institute, Kurt Kotans and and Dr. Rick Grant and them, I think the number that they've kind of settled on is somewhere between five and six pounds of UNDF a day. When she hits that measurement, then um, then she just she stops eating. She gets full. Holstein cow. Yeah, and and a lot, and that's going to depend on 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 body weight, and it also will will um, depend on where she's at in in her lactation. Early lactation, high, high producing seems to be can can handle a little bit more. Whereas, whereas when we when we get past peak lactation, we need to really be considering considering that UNDF. So we talked about fiber, uh, we talked about fiber digestibility, we talked about starch, but we didn't talk about starch digestibility. Are there any starch digestibility numbers that that a producer really needs to hone in on? Once again, compare compare your lab to other samples out of that lab. Don't there, there's no uh, lab. Labs vary a little bit. I mean, we have we we have a lot of cooperation amongst. I think, at least from what I've seen, uh, from labs in the country these days, from what we had ten years ago. I think that they've standardized a lot of things, but there's still some differences in technique, uh, in in where the fluid that they use was arrived from, and how the process went about. Um, you know, seven hours in, in, in fluid, you know, is, is, is a measurement for starch digestibility, which is largely accepted. But where did the fluid come from? How did we access? You know, there's some, there's some fluctuations there. So bottom line is uh, there's going to be some differences in numbers from lab to lab. Some are going to look really good. Some are going to look really bad. But they're going to milk the same. Just depends on where, you know, where, the, where that lab comes from. So comparisons need to come from within each lab as we begin to look there. Um, neat thing about starch digestibility is, is the digestibility of our starch is going to be pretty good a year from, you know, if that silage is set in fermentation for a year. Yeah. Um, and, and those numbers are going to be pretty, pretty consistent there. The, the area that you're really going to want to focus on starch digestibility isn't a year from now, you know, because almost all of the starch that's in that si- sample is going to be is going to be available to the cow within a year. Where you're really going to want to focus on that is early. Yes. You know, the first six months that that silage is in fermentation, that's when that number becomes critical. And and there is in in some some companies say that that moisture content controls that, and it's absolutely not true. We can prove that. We can prove that any day of the week, time and time again. 
differences in, in, in hybrids and differences in genetics make differences in starch digestibility. So focus on that number. The higher the number early, the better. And where you really want to look at that is, is you want to look at how high that is as compared to the industry. You know, so when you get some of the labs that look at what all the samples look like in terms of starch digestibility, how does my corn silage stack up compared to that? Yes. Because that's going to help you determine, am I going to feed this pile first? Am I going to feed this pile last? Do I need to let it How is that going to affect management? Yeah. You know, a lot of these things that... that, that am are, I going to have to add a little corn? Am I going to... You know, the the more digestible that that starch is, the less starch I have to have. Yes. Yeah. And 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 how I'm how I'm going to be able to do that. Um, so I, w- I want to take a step back into something that I just thought about. We've been talking about the differences between lab to lab. All right. So we got to look at that. Now, one of the other things is is that some labs run some tests and some labs don't. You know, one of those is is TTNDFD that we kind of skipped over when we were talking about fiber digestibility, total tract neutral detergent fiber digestibility, and that's a mouthful. You know, uh, not every lab runs that test, and that that's kind of a that's kind of a, a if if thirty hour NDFD is a snapshot, TTNDFD is kind of the movie. It shows how this thing's gonna gonna digest, and they kind of uh, give it a score. Of, of where of how digestible that is over several different time points, but not every lab does that. And, and there are other things that that some labs do and some labs don't. And so that's another thing that we've got to really be careful about when we're looking at this. Not all labs we not all labs are equal, so we can't judge from lab to lab. If I get a sample from Rock River or Cumberland Valley or or Dairy One. I can't look at those as compared as, as compared to each other. I have to look within within the lab there. So we talked about fiber, we talked about starch, we talked about digestibility. What about some of these calculations that we get on a uh, on a feed sample? Years ago, now this was I'll show I'll show your age and not mine, right? Years ago, you looked at TDNs, and even in the beef industry now, we're still looking at TDNs, total digestible nutrient. Although for corn silage and dairy producers. It may be an indicator number, but it's really not a good good fine number for that. So we have we have some of these other ones: uh, RF, RFV, relative feed value, relative feed quality. Um, TTNDFD is one of those. But but milk per ton can can we use milk per ton when we look at a feed sample? You know, um, we we kind of we kind of we, we touched on those basic things that at the beginning of, of our of our of our discussion here we said were were key elements that we wanted to kind of focus in on and then as as we begin to have a need to break that solid sample down which is obviously that that's one of the that's one of your primary job responsibilities is to really fine-tunely break this down so that we can most accurately predict what it's going to do in a cow, yes. what this hybrid is going to do, and is this new one that, that, that Kevin and his team is developing going to, going to feed better than one that we've already got in the lineup? Does it have the potential to go there? That, that's your job. We begin to move away from these foundational pieces that, that help us to have a, a basic idea. Yeah, this is probably looks like a pretty decent sample, or no, I can see some real problems here, into the tools that are going to help us to make that determination on, on how much better this is going to be than, than the other. And so you ask about milk per ton back up to TTNDFD. TTNDFD is a tool. Yes. And, and if, it's, if it's used, Dr. Combs created TTNDFD. D, and it's it's an excellent tool to accompany you know some of the other pieces of information that we've got on a lab sample to help us determine 
you know, the effectiveness or the efficiency that that, that, that sample is going to have or that silage is going to have. And so um, it's not an end-all. Right. What, what, right. What, what folks are looking for and what, what probably most of the people in our audience is looking for is give me that number, you know, that I can, that I can look at and decide that's going to tell me all I need to know. And it's really not that simple. And it's, it, I, I, w- I wish it were. It would make my job a whole lot easier. Well, it, it would if I, I had know. that number. You know what I mean? Okay, but here, here, here's an example for you. You, you brought up milk per ton. That is what we wanted to be the end all. Right. We wanted milk per ton to decide what it's going to be. You know what, what that, uh, what the result of that sample is, is, is in a nutshell. How can I, how can I compile all of these elements? Because I don't want to have to learn what all of these things mean the way that Mark yeah. Kirk has to do, has to understand them. I want to be able to just and, and simple is better. You know, keep it simple. Milk per ton was supposed to be that thing. It was developed in two thousand and six. The last time that it was 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 upgraded. Milk per ton is a good number. But, but let me just let me just give you an example of where that can be very a, a very difficult to define number. The the components that go into establishing what milk per ton is largely going to be the the fiber and the starch and the percentage of the digestibility of the fiber. Right. Okay. That number, if you pull a silage sample right out of the field and you send it into the lab, that number for milk per ton is going to be about the same as it's going to be if you send that same silage sample in eight, ten months later. Because the percentage of starch, the, the percentage of fiber, the percentage of fiber digestibility isn't going to change. Right. Fermentation, right. fiber doesn't get better right. during fermentation. Right. The starch gets better during fermentation, and, and starch digestibility isn't accounted into milk per ton. Right. Okay. So what I'm telling you is milk per ton is a tool that can be used as an indicator of what that silage is going to be. But if that, let's just say if your milk per ton is 3,200 pounds at, in September when you chop the silage, it's going to be 3,200 pounds in September, you know, or, or, or July when you're feeding it. And so in your eyes, Mr. Dairyman, you're saying this corn is just as good in September as it is, as, as it is the following July, and no dairyman out there knows that his corn's going to feed the same. Oh, yeah. Right out of the right out right out of the right out of the gate Absolutely. as it is eight ten months later. Yeah. So that number has got to be skewed. He knows that. So it's a it's a tool. It's an indicator to be used, but use it in context. I, I think one of the one of the best uh, things that I ever heard was from uh, Dr. Mary Beth Hall out of uh, out of Wisconsin, uh, the Forge Lab, uh, or the, the USDA. USDA. Um, she, we were talking about all of this and, and I was going to her asking, you know, how, how can I better quantify what corn silages are going to be to pick better hybrids? And we were talking through that. And she said, when you look at a lab sample, she said, do you take that lab sample as gospel or do you use it to just point you in a direction? Absolutely. And, and, and I thought, well, you're exactly right. I use a lab sample to point me in a direction. I think a lot of times what we want to do is we want to look at it. We want that answer. We want, we want this is 100% sure, you know, this is always going to be like this. And really, lab samples point us in the direction. And, and, a, and a good nutritionist knows that um, feeding cows is as much about intuition as it is about reading a lab sample. Lab samples give us an indication. They help us to know kind of where we're at and where we need to start and give us, but they, give, they just give us direction. And, um, and, and so they can be confusing. 
They can be all kinds of different convoluted things and, and, and letters and numbers and, and all kinds of things. But we need to realize that they tell us bits and pieces. They cannot, they, a, a silage sample can never tell us the whole story. Correct. Uh, of, of the way that is. And that's been one of the difficulties with my job, that, that having to figure out how do, we, how do we know? How do we know one hybrid is better than the other one? Well, we, you take this to its extreme. You look, at, you look at the competitions that are going on around the world in terms of taking a forage sample and, and evaluating it, comparing it to other samples, and, 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 and making that a competition and how, and how, that, how that rolls out. One of the one of the neatest competitions, and one that we like to one that we like to uh, to draw attention to is is some of the Super Bowl competitions that, yes. that take place in in uh, in the United States, and uh, you know, largely the result of that is 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 highly weighted by milk per ton. Yes, and so folks need to understand that you're looking at percentage of starch, percentage of fiber, and, and fiber digestibility. You're not looking at starch digestibility. And one of the things that I know that you have focused on to separate master's choice from other competition out there has been the digestibility of the starch, sure. which is not accounted for in, in those competitions. And, and for the most part, it makes no difference because those silage samples are taken you know, that go into the competition six, eight months as a rule after they're harvested. And so that, that's not really a part of the equation. But the average guy out there on the farm doesn't have six or eight months of, of silage stockpiled. A lot of times, right. He's got to start feeding that sooner so starch digestibility comes into play there. We had seven of the top ten uh, finalists at the Forge Super Bowl at Madison, Wisconsin this past year at Dairy Expo. You know, we won the competition two of the last three years. You know, and, and even up against the Brown Midroof competition, our milk per ton, when we're talking about starch, fiber, and the digestibility of the fiber, rank right up there. And, and in fact, we've, we've come out on top in terms of, of, of silage samples with highest milk per tons that don't figure in starch digestibility. It's a unique number, one that we're one, one in a field that we're proud to play in, because we 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 realize how important fiber digestibility is. It's half the sample. It's half the dry matter of the sample. Starch is the other half, and we right. and we need to use that as we're right. as, and and use it as a management tool. So as we, as we look at as we kind of think about this with with si with silage samples, you know, really what we're wanting is is higher quality, and higher quality is. Um, it, is going to help us be more productive and more profitable. And so productive and profitable is one of those areas that a lot of times that, that get, that get as, as convoluted as, uh, as silage samples and, and that, well, today in studio, we kind of have a, we have a special guest, uh, Alex Feller, who is, um, the, if you're the chief cook and bottle washer, Alex uh, is the chief counter of bottles, and uh, he is our director of finance here at Master's Choice. And, and so, um, you know, Alex, just kind of go through a few things, kind of bing, 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 of some ways that uh, farms can be more profitable and just some things that they need to be looking at and, uh, and some ideas that they, may, that, may, that they may need. Yeah, well, and you hit on a couple good points there. So the first thing is that I think that agriculture is becoming just as much of a of a game of the mind as much as it's always been hard work. 
Um, you've always had early mornings, late nights. That's always been the case. And now it's becoming even more important that we understand finance, that we understand economics and cash flow and things like that. Things that some people are intimidated by or some just hate in general. Um, but it really can make or break how a farm or how any operation really uh, succeeds. And so I'll start by saying two things, which is one, I'm probably going to say grower a lot. Okay. And by grower, I don't necessarily mean you have to produce something in the field in order for this to apply to you, but we'll just use that as our generic term. I like it. And then the second one is you'll probably get a lot of questions um, from people throughout any consultation about finance, which is, should I do this? And the answer is always going to be maybe. Uh, I, worked at, I worked at a tax firm for a while, and um, the one thing that was constant was you ask, if anybody asks a question, doesn't matter who it is, they're always going to ask a yes or no question that the person can't answer because every operation is different. Every grower is different. Um, their background, their knowledge, everything depends on your situation. So uh, not black and white, just some guidelines that we're going to talk about today. Um, okay. So we're the one, what I kind of want to talk about was what we call playing the financial long game. Um, you might have heard that before in some different contexts, but what it means for a, for a grower today, for the average grower today, is you're up against tough margins. You're up against an economy where there's lots of consolidation. Um, inherited farms are becoming less and less, and they're becoming larger, um, more consolidated or corporate farms. And that's scary to a lot of people, and it probably should be. Um, it means the economic climate's not what it used to be, and uh, prices aren't where they used to be. So. When, we, when you come across an economy like that, the temptation is, I'm going to make decisions based on the short term. I'm going, to, I'm going to look at what's right in front of me, and that's it, because I'm just trying to survive until next year. Mm. And you hear that a lot from guys. Um, it's tough. I'm, I'm working harder for the same amount that I got last year, so I'm just looking at what's in front of me. That's really dangerous thinking, financially speaking. Um, it may work, and for some people it definitely will, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to be the only method that you use. And so what I'm going to talk about today are just five points to get out of that mindset. Good. How do you look further down the road? Okay. Um, I can remember when I was in, in driver's education. That was like two years ago? Two years ago, yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. In driver's education. And I'm talking about the formal one, not the one where my wife tells me how to drive. Yeah, right? there okay. you go. There you go. So in the formal one, they tell you, you look, you look down the road a little ways. If you were to look right in front of your car, you don't see what's up ahead. If there's a deer on the side of the road, you can't avoid it because you see it as soon as it hits your car. Um, you don't know where the turns are. And so you have to look a little bit down the road in order to get a good understanding of what you might need to be doing right now to prepare for it. Um, the first thing, as far as it applies to growers, I would say, and this is probably the most important, focus on outputs more than you focus on inputs. A lot of the time we get caught up in trying to uh, save nickels and pennies when we could be earning dollars with okay. our time. So, so I, I want to back up just for, for one second. Shoot. Just, just your opinion, okay? So how far out should we be looking? I would say no more than right now, probably not a ton more than five years. Okay. Now that doesn't mean you can't have a long-term plan. Right. But when I'm planning uh, how I'm going to use my cash or my equipment, um, or maybe even my land, I'm probably not thinking more than five years down the road. If you want to have a big, broad goal for your business, that's perfectly fine. Um, but for practical, what I'm doing today and how it affects, I'd probably do about five years. So five, five years. Five years is what they need to look. How is, this, yeah. how is what I'm doing today going to affect where I want to be in five years? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and so focusing on outputs does a few things for you. Um, it puts your mind more into how can I make money, 
how can I make dollars, then how can I save nickels and dimes? And I'm not going to say that there are not really good deals out there to be had on, on um, you know, something that I apply to my field or the seed that I put into my field or equipment. Um, but for the most part, I want to focus on the end result. My goal is not to save money. My goal is to make more money. My goal is to increase my production of my corn or my beans or my milk or whatever it is that I'm getting paid based off of. And so that's where the majority of my time needs to go. Now, there, the cost is always going to be a portion of that, but I'm not going to waste my time trying to negotiate some small decrease in price on an input when I could be spending it on, okay, how do I increase the amount of output that I'm getting? Because that's what's going to drive my business. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, and I, I just to kind of add to that real quick, you know, we were, we were talking uh, in the last podcast with uh, John Laidler, and we were talking about, you know, guys really wanted to cut some seed costs this year. And the danger that could be is is that I could completely lose yield if I don't if I don't get the the high quality uh, elite genetics if I don't if I don't buy those and just buy whatever I can buy at the farm store for eighty bucks a bag and and I lose so much yield then then I then I I'm, I really have lost money and and not made any more than than what I had so that's kind of the thing you're talking about yeah and 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 we've heard of deals uh, you know I can't remember the geography now we've heard of some companies doing a buy one get one or a buy one get two um, really tempting to to go after those kinds of sales but what are you getting what are you actually going to get in the field when you plant those kinds of things right um, or you know you could look at it from not just a seed perspective but from any other inputs as well you get what you pay for is 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 a cliche, but it's really true. Um, and companies that are vendors are just about as desperate sometimes as some growers are. And so they're gonna they're gonna cut deals they normally wouldn't cut, sell products they normally wouldn't sell just to try to keep afloat. Okay. So the second aspect. Uh, the second aspect, I would just say, mind your accumulated depreciation. And this is one I know. Whoa, whoa, I know. I know. Watch your mouth. I'm this gonna, is a family show. I'm gonna I'm gonna define it. I'm gonna define it. You could call it AD if you want to. Does that feel, okay. make you feel okay. better? So accumulated depreciation is the aggregate amount of your depreciation expense. And a lot of guys know what depreciation expense is. It's that thing that lowers your taxes after you buy something brand new at the end of the year. Yes. Um, so depreciation expense basically says uh, a lot of guys think it was an IRS thing. It's really not. It's more of an accounting thing because it tells you how your equipment is losing value over time or losing its lifespan over time. It is an IRS thing too. Uh, you do you do get a tax benefit for it. It does decrease your net income, so it decreases your taxable income. That's a whole another thing. Uh, but your accumulated depreciation tracks that year by year. So if I buy a piece of equipment for $100,000 and it's got a 10-year life, every year it's losing $10,000 of value that goes into this account called accumulated depreciation. If I if I let it depreciate all the way, what that tells me on my books is that it doesn't have a lot longer left to live. And some guys can probably mine more years out of it than what the books say it has. Okay. But if you're looking at your accumulated depreciation and it's about 90% of what your equipment account is, chances are you're going to have some investments down the road. And you need to be preparing for that. Um, the, it's a little bit of, um, I want to say, arrogance necessarily, but it's, it's pretty optimistic thinking that the equipment that you're using today is going to last forever. Some right. of it may last longer than it should. Unless it's a John Deere 4020, and, and I don't think you could blow one of those things up. Have we tried? <laughs> Probably. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, so that's another thing to keep in mind is just that you your equipment isn't going to last forever. Right. And it's really tempting to forget about those larger expenses on the books. 
but you actually have a method of doing that on your balance sheet and accumulated depreciation. You can keep track of about how much you've got left in your equipment um, and, and plan a little bit for the investments you may have to make in the next few years. Okay, third step. Uh, third step is just to make a plan. Uh, a lot of the guys we talk to, um, not, I wouldn't say a lot necessarily, but but a, a few of them will will we'll ask them, you know, what's your plan for your crops next year? We'll ask them this in September, October. Well, I have no idea. You, you really should. You really should start to plan what your crops are going to look like for the next year, probably before you harvest this year's crop. Absolutely. Um, a lot of decisions made on a whim are usually made poorly. If you're prepared, if you know what you're going to say to a vendor or somebody when they walk up to your farm, you're usually going to make the right decision. Now, where you get in trouble is you run out of time, you run out of money, you start making some really bad decisions if you don't have a plan. Sure. Now, you got two more. What are, what are your others? Two more. Uh, so the practice of saying no, which kind of goes hand-in-hand in hand with the last one. If you have a plan, it's a have lot easier. Have you been easier. talking to my wife? I have not. Okay, just wondering. I have not. Did you want some new boots or something? Is that? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking for a new tractor. So. A satchel? A new satchel. A, a new satchel. Yeah. A new flowery shirt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so it, it, it sounds easy and you'll definitely run into some growers that are good at this, uh, if you're a salesperson out there, but, uh, it's really tempting to take a deal that's really bad. If you don't have a plan, if you're not prepared to say no, you got to know where you're going to draw the line with your finances, with your investments, and you got to know where you can give a little bit in order to make the best decisions. Sounds good. And then the last one is just guard cash flows. So there are perfectly profitable businesses out Again, there. Again, have you been talking to my wife? I, I've not. Okay. Gosh. I've not. Do I need to? Is she, you, well, no, no, no. She's been, she'd been saying no a lot lately. Your cash and she's flows. been guarding the cash flow. Take the credit card. Take exactly. the debit card. <laughs> um, so what this means is basically that you can have a perfectly profitable business that runs smoothly for a few years. You overextend yourself like somebody who might have bought a house that uh, really couldn't make the payments necessarily, but they were good enough that they got approved for the loan. Sure. It's kind of that same principle, a little, a little bit different when it comes to a business. So a business can run profitably for a long time, but then they have to invest in this equipment. Then they got to make these land payments. Then they got to do this and this and this, and eventually they can't pay their vendors. And what happens when you can't pay vendors is you start getting your credit dinged. You can't get financing downward spiral from there. Um, so it's really important, even though your, your income statement may say, yeah, you're making a lot of money on the income statement. You got to make sure there's enough cash in there to make it all happen. That's kind of the oil that makes it all flow. Good. Good. Alex, we, we appreciate you sharing those things with us. We appreciate you uh, coming in and, and like I said, taking time out of your schedule to do that. Um, Hey, if you mind, if I give out your email address, somebody, somebody hears this and goes, you know, I just have a question about accumulated depreciation. Yeah, it's Mark at Seedcorn.com. No, no, oh, no, oh, no, okay. no, no, okay, no, okay. No. It's Alex at Seedcorn.com. Alex at Seedcorn.com. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to answer any questions about any of these points. And like I said, everything is going to depend. It's going to depend on the situation, the circumstance, the, the knowledge. And, Absolutely. And I'd be happy to answer any questions you got. Good deal. Good deal. Thanks, Alex. Lynn, we're about to wrap up. I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you the last word, so to speak. And, uh, and anything else you want to finish up with? Anything that you can think of, maybe touch on something, Alex, something, something you didn't think about with silage samples, or maybe you just want to talk about how good I am. No, that wasn't what I was going to talk about. <laughs> no, I, I, it's been it's been fun. Uh, I know that uh, I know that for for me, it's been and, and I've told you this before. It's been very very gratifying for me watching you come in and pick up nutrition, kind of where I have, have begun to to let off. Um, it's been, you know, it, it's, it's not that 
the differences in corn hybrids are so extreme, you know, that, that, that every decision out here is a, is a no-brainer. But you have really, you've put together these 20-some-odd layers of testing that you routinely do uh, to help us determine how and, and we're going to move forward with a corn hybrid. And I'm so pleased with that, and I'm so pleased with the progress that you've made there uh, in working with the unique group of people that, that you have assembled around around the world, I mean, just a, an elite uh, group of uh, a knowledge base um, uh, that, that, you've, that you feed from uh, has been really satisfying for me. And so getting a chance to come in and look at and, and talk nutrition a little bit and, and then knowing uh, where you have taken it from here. You know, yes, we talk basic nutrition here. Some of the things that you're working with are, are so far advanced that it's, uh, it, it's really, it, it, like I said, satisfying for me. Absolutely. Hey, Lynn, I appreciate it. Thank you guys for listening today. We appreciate you tuning in. Uh, as always, we are social. You can uh, uh, pick us up on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and always at seedcorn.com. Have a good day. <laughs>